The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. It is October 28th, 2022, and it's 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time, 4 p.m. in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes, 4.30 p.m. in Newfoundland, 8 p.m. in Dublin and London, 9 p.m. in Paris and Berlin, 10 p.m. in Kiev. And also Moscow. They're in the same time zone, not yet the same country. 10.30 p.m. Tehran. For all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone, midnight in Islamabad. Nothing Islamabadder than a midnight in Islamabad. Midnight 45 in Kathmandu. For all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone, 3 a.m. in Singapore and Honkers, 6 a.m. in Melbourne, Sydney, 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning in Auckland, and an even more civilized hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri beyond. Uh, 100 years ago today, October 28th, 1922, fascists marched on Rome and took over the Italian government. We'll have more on that in Saturday's 100 Years Ago show, and we'll also have a brand new Sunday poem for you this weekend. This is going to be a very busy month at Stein Online, and if you're a... Mark Stein Club member will have some uh, exciting news for you in your inbox uh, very shortly. Uh, before we before we get started, I just want to say a quick thing. I don't often talk about uh, things like the U.S. midterms because the back and forth I find extremely uh, tedious. But I do regard what's going to be happening in whatever it is ten days time now, week on Tuesday, as a test and and. Uh, an important test. Uh, one of the interesting things about the uh, election of November 2020, and I can say this because uh, a lot of other people can't, Cumulus, who I can't remember the name of that wanker at Cumulus, um, but he was the executive vice president or something, and he said that if you queried the results of the election, you would uh, be deemed to be... Uh, resigning from the company. So that's why all the butch boys, I don't need to name them, you know them, they're incredibly butch, they're very butch bumper music, butchy, butchy, butchy. Uh, They all suddenly fell silent on that. But if you believe the result of that election, Joe Biden got 81 million votes, which is more votes than any American has gotten for anything ever. 81 million votes. What was interesting was that it did not correlate at all with any results down ticket. It's quite amazing. In fact, Joe Biden uh, not only had no coattails, he had no coat. 
His his shirt basically had a collar and then about three inches just dangling down to about two thirds up his back. Uh, for example, I think of the 16 bellwether constituencies, the 16 bellwether districts uh, that tell you uh, who's going to win the election, that are the predictor, have been the predictors of the election for time immemorial. Of those 16 bellwethers, he 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 only won one. It was quite incredible. The people who decided the election, as I said, this is if you believe it. And of course, you know, I might need to get a job on cumulus radio networks one day. So I'm just laying the groundwork for talking bollocks like all the Butch boys have to talk on cumulus. Um, I'm uh, so it's interesting to me, as I said, 15 of the 16 bellwethers Joe Biden didn't carry. No coattails, no coat, no nothing. He's 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 in a he's backless. Um, And uh, it it was the so the official version is that Joe Biden was the only uh, Democrat that these people wanted to vote for. The reason for that, if you have a cynical bent, is that. Uh, they had to find the votes they needed, whatever it was, the 50,000 votes in six key places, in a great hurry. So they didn't have time to fill in the rest of the ballot. So they just had to fill in the presidential result and leave all the ones going down to dog catcher absolutely blank. That's the point I always made when I'm asked about it, when people like uh, the guy who was attorney general, uh, what's his name, Bill Barr, say, oh, no evidence of widespread theft. You didn't need widespread theft. This is the genius of the American system. Don't wave. I'm not going to do the don't wave that constitution at me thing too quickly. But that's the genius of the system is that you don't have to have widespread theft. You just have to have narrow spread theft in the right places. Now, this here coming up a week on Tuesday is a, is a much is a much more uh, is going to require much more extensive operation because you're going to have to. It's uh, it's largely located at many of the same uh, places. For example, I'm looking at the uh, race for Pennsylvania Senate, which is Oz versus this strange hulking. Uh, snarling, inarticulate creature who who may ex- who may in fact be the most perfect representation of the Democrat. Way better. D- Biden's problem is that he's uh, uh, inarticulate and mentally enfeebled, but also appears to be physically enfeebled. Uh, this guy in Pennsylvania uh, who can't string a sentence together, but is this big hulking menace, uh, gets uh, encapsulates um, m- much more relevantly the raw uh, power wielded by the Democrat Party. But it shows Dr. Oz. I, I know Dr. Oz a little. I've shared a sofa with him at Fox and Friends and things from time to time. Shows Dr. Oz up three. Up three is not enough for a Republican to win in Pennsylvania. Up three. It's this was even before true, even before 2020. Then we have the Georgia Senate race, this rather unprepossessing Republican candidate who, you know, a so-called glamour candidate who simply isn't really a very nimble campaigner. I'm looking at this poll showing him up five. I'm not sure up five. This is an interesting one. I'm not sure whether up five in the polls is enough to win. 
uh, in Georgia these days. As you know, that's the place where they had uh, strategically overflowing toilets and all the rest of it. So I'm just making the point here that I think what happens a week on Tuesday is a test, is a test because the Democrats uh, want to win. I think I think they want to keep the Senate and they want to keep the House if they can. But it is re- going to require a far more extensive operation than what happened in 2020. And with that, let us get to your questions. Eric Dale says, hey, Mark and fellow club members, we're entering the home stretch of the midterm elections in the U.S. And it looks like conservatives have a chance to retake both houses of Congress. Although Mitch McConnell has been oddly unenthusiastic about regaining a Senate majority, even pulling funding from New Hampshire's Senate candidate. What lessons should Republicans take to heart if they win out the midterms? Or are we always destined to lose because conservative politicians are habitually more left-wing than conservative voters? Uh, Well, you know, here's the thing. Let's say it all goes, quote, unquote, the Senate majority leader's way, minority leader's way, and he winds up the Senate majority leader. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not persuaded there's anything he wants to do. I'm persuaded that Lindsey Graham wants to launch in, what's he want? He wants an investigation uh, into Hunter Biden. Is that right? Or are they going to have an investigation into what went wrong with John Durham's investigation into the Russia investigation? But, you know, in terms of saving the country, what, what, what's Mitch McConnell's plan for that? You, he never talks about that. You never hear anything about that. As for pulling, you know, money from uh, Baldock, Baldock, uh, is, who's the Senate uh, candidate, you know, he's an interesting candidate to me. He's real in a way that a lot of uh, candidates are. And he's up against Maggie Hassan, who's agreed to, by by general agreement, is the most vulnerable uh, Senate incumbent senator. Uh, and on an average, uh, she's up about uh, three three point four points. So he's in the game. Now, the money that Mitch has yanked, I don't know what they were going to do with that. I guess it was going to be an ad buy. Um, It's a hard market, New Hampshire, to buy ads for because there's basically one station, this Channel 9 down in southern New Hampshire in Manchester, and they do very well. But all the other stations people watch in the state, TV stations, come from elsewhere. They watch Channel 3 from Vermont. They watch Channel 8 from Maine, they watch in the South, they watch Massachusetts Channel. This is if they're even watching TV at all. So I, I think it whether he wins or not depends on what his ground game is. And for the same reason that it's a hard TV market to buy, it's actually quite a hard state to poll accurately. But he's in the game, Don Baldock. He's in the game. And it's telling that simply because he's not part of the club that uh, that uh, Mitch McConnell doesn't want to spend money on it. Hart Leonard actually has a bit more on that. So, Mark, what do you make of the race between your fellow New Hampshireites, Baldock and Hassan? Uh, the Mitch McConnell-controlled PAC, the Senate Leadership Fund, recently pulled $5.6 million. That goes a long way in New Hampshire. Previously committed to Baldock's campaign with the explanation that Mr. Baldock is fading in the polls and has no chance of winning. 
thus allowing the funds to be diverted elsewhere. It's not much of a polled state, but the most recent poll in the state, Hart, uh, shows, in fact, that of uh, 600 likely voters, uh, Hassan is up, Maggie Hassan is up by just one point. So it's doable, this, it's doable. Um, And you go on to say... uh, Within the past two to three days, the National Republican Senatorial Committee has committed a million to the Baldock campaign for the running of campaign ads saying that the seat is now winnable. Some believe, as I do, that the real reason for McConnell's PAC pulling the funds is that Mr. Baldock has been quoted as saying he cannot support McConnell as the in-perpetuity leader of the Senate Republicans. And Mr. Baldock is certainly not in step with McConnell on the integrity of the 2020 election. This particular race always seems left out of the discussions among conservative talk pundits about the coming red wave. But Mr. Baldock is the only Republican candidate that I've heard express any discontent with McConnell. And if I were a granite stater, I would vote for him on that point alone. It is crucial to remove McConnell from the leadership. He is a Trojan horse to conservatism, and he may ultimately prove as corrupt as Biden. Any predictions for your home state's race? Well, I don't have any predictions except a general observation that New Hampshire, by the standards of the United States, has quite clean elections except for college towns. And uh, by that, I don't just mean, you know, the famous college town, Hanover, which is where Dartmouth College is, but also places people don't really think of as college towns in that sense, like Plymouth, which is where... uh, What I think of is uh, Plymouth Normal School. That's what they used to call it when uh, teachers went there to train to be a teacher, uh, but is now uh, been upgraded from Plymouth Normal School to Plymouth State University. And there's enough kind of uh, out of state students and all the other rubbish uh, just to make it possible with a handful of New Hampshire college towns just to do enough to steal the election. For example, Kelly Ayot, who's the very definition of a rhino squish and certainly no friend of mine. Um, But Kelly Ayot won uh, the Senate race in 2016. And and, uh, uh, it, it was... The victory was taken from her by just enough of these shenanigans in these... Uh, five or six little college towns. So I think that's going to be the deciding thing. But you make an interesting point that I hadn't thought about. You know, I listen, I don't, I don't listen to a lot of uh, American talk radio these days, uh, while I'm tootling around with the exception of Howie Carr. And, um, but, but I notice that whenever you have these things where they're doing the old time for an election update, and I'm listening to Fox and presumably some guy at Fox uh, standing by the big board or whatever they call it and pointing out spots on the map about the Senate races to watch. New Hampshire never, New Hampshire, where they said just a few months before the primary, oh, Maggie Hassan's the most vulnerable senator. And then when the wrong guy won the primary, they don't even talk about the race anymore. So you're right about that. You're right about that. You get a lot of stuff about Pennsylvania, a lot of stuff about Georgia, but you don't get a lot about you don't get a lot about that. It's because he's uh, 
maybe it is because he's questioned the integrity of it. It's very weird the way Americans are so touchy about question if about anyone who questions the integrity of uh, U.S. elections, which are a joke. It's interesting the right. As I said, beyond the cumulus stations, the big shots on the right don't talk about it. But I think you may have something there hard about why that isn't even talked about. Eileen Robertson says, Hi, Mark. I read earlier this week that two of the Rochdale rapists are finally going to be deported to Pakistan. You didn't need to read it, Eileen. We covered it on something called The Mark Stein Show on your television screens because it was most interesting to me that after a decade of appeals, two of these convicted child gang rapists, don't compare them to your nice, respectable rape. Who who was it? Whoopi Goldberg? Okay, it was rape, but it wasn't rapey rape. Uh, These guys are the full rapey rape. They're gang rapists of children, so they're not like your your run-of-the-mill rapists. And they're going to be deported back to Pakistan. Do you think this will make any difference whatsoever? Or is this just a token drop of justice to have set the bad PR for police, social services and the like? I don't think it's even beyond that. You know, Samantha Smith was on our show. Um, Samantha, they spent two years, the West Mercia police, investigating her case. She, she, She was a victim of these fellas from the age of five, and it ended over a decade later. And Samantha, I think, is not yet 20. So we're talking about something that only ended four or five years ago. And uh, as always, she points out that her situation is the norm, that something like 97% of all these in all these cases, the rapists are still walking around. They're still strolling the streets of Rochdale and Rotherham and Oxford and Telford. The rate of prosecution of sexual assault is pathetic in the United Kingdom, particularly in England and Wales, but the but the rate and, and the rate of prosecution of these victims of Pakistani Muslim rape gangs is uh, is truly pathetic. So I don't think it says anything except that uh, sometimes even the most dogged snook cockers, because that's what these guys are doing, they're cocking a snook at the entire British state by saying we can rape your daughters for years on end and there's nothing you can do. And sure, Sure, once in a while, they'll be able to get enough evidence that they can send us to jail for two or three years. And then we're out and we're walking around on the streets of town and you guys can't do anything about it. And once in a while, you're going to come up with a couple of guys, these two guys, one's 54, one's 51. And they're, you know, they hire the wrong lawyer and he doesn't pull it off for them. And I don't think it means any more than that. It's terrible. Jonathan uh, Bradstone says, Hi, Mark. Do you think that Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter will have any kind of impact on the free speech uh, front? I notice, interestingly, that Facebook stock is plummeting. Uh, What do you make of that? Is the timing weird? Uh, Well, as you know, we're only in the first Maybe it is weird, but we're only in the first day of his ownership. 
And what I find interesting, he what, what what was it? He said that the bird had been set free. The bird is freed, as in reference to the little Twitter logo showing that he's no longer a bird in a gilded cage, uh, <laughs> being excessively policed by all these executives that uh, Elon Musk has just fired. But, but. Uh, you know what? Thierry Breton, who is the internal market, the commissioner for the internal market of the European Union, responded to Mr. Musk's tweet, the bird is freed, by saying, in Europe, the bird will fly by our rules. And it was interesting to me, he didn't have to respond to the tweet at all. The tweet is simply saying, or we have liberated free speech from these control freaks. You could have just let it sit out there. But Monsieur Breton, who's one of those figures, no, no Americans ever heard of him, and most Europeans haven't heard of him, but he's one of those people who run the world. He goes from uh, one unelected position to another unelected position. It's not only that you've never heard of him, you've never heard of the jobs he uh, he holds, but he he wields he like uh, Cruella von der Leyen, uh, that who no one had heard of until she became so-called president of Europe. So these these people you've never oh, I've never heard of him. He can't be look. I'm I, you know what's happening in the uh, Senate race in Pennsylvania. No, these people you've never heard of are the people who run the world. They're the people who matter. And it's interesting to me that he decided to slap down Elon Musk on his very first day. So we shall see. We shall see. Ali writes, Hi, Mark. This week, the New York Supreme Court struck down New York City's vaccine mandate for public and private employees. How does this jibe with the U.S. Supreme Court's decision earlier this year that allowed government vaccine mandates for federal workers to stand. That includes healthcare workers and other private sector employees whose employer has contracts with the federal government or receives federal funds. SCOTUS has refused to hear states' challenges to federal mandates, but can they continue to allow the government to compel an ineffective and potentially harmful vaccine as a condition of employment for federal quasi-federal workers? Well, the New York Supreme Court isn't a Supreme Court. It's not the appellate court. It's the lowest level. It's a court of first jurisdiction, in in fact. Um, I, I was I won in the New York Supreme Court, and uh, CRTV then played their usual silly asses. So it all wound up at whatever the appeals court is called, and we had to go there. So they're not quite equivalent in that sense. Um, and that's an important point to bear in mind. Even in totally corrupt judicial systems, you can still find the odd judge here and there who, who isn't totally uh, corrupted. I think with the Supreme Court, I think that was the Roberts thing. Roberts's thing is he doesn't want the court to become an issue. He thinks He thinks that will just demolish then the ability of the court to rule on things like Roe versus Wade, uh, because if they're if they're perceived to be weighing in on current current political con controversies, controversies. Can't remember where I am now. Which one is it here? Controversy or controversy? Uh, anyway, 
and, and I think that's I, I don't think, for example, they would uh, decide that way today, though, because I think there's just too much evidence to say that mandating a vaccine does not fulfill, even if you assert that it's being done for a legitimate reason, i.e. to prevent transmission to other people, uh, that, that, there's simply too much evidence against that now. Simply too much evidence against that. Now, they don't want to hear challenges to, uh, to, to mandates. They don't want to get into this thing at all. But that's one of the problems in in a, as I always say, a uh, you know a a republic of a judge's republic is no republic at all. But that's the system. That's the system you have here. But I don't believe, I don't I don't believe at all that there's any rational. This story gets worse for the official narrative every forty eight hours. Now you can still see tosspot public health officials demanding you get your booster. Joe Biden, who declared that COVID is over a month ago, is still saying, oh, I've got my latest booster. You should get your latest booster. But but there's too much now that they're going to have to come up. They they won't replace it with the truth, but they have to replace it with a slightly less ludicrous fairy tale. So they haven't yet agreed on what the new fairy tale will be. Veronica writes from New Zealand. Uh, Hi, Mark. I can't help but notice that. Well, here we here we go. I can't help but notice that there has been a narrative shift on a number of topics lately. The closing of schools during the pandemic and the lab leak theory to name uh, but two. Even John Stewart has admitted on his podcast that the Hunter Biden Burisma deal was corruption straight up. Gee, thanks, John. You're so very cutting edge, aren't you, John? So that two years after it ceased to matter, you know, oh, yeah, that Hunter Biden stuff was right all along. Has this shift occurred because of the midterm elections or because Elon Musk has taken over Twitter and the establishment narrative was going to crumble anyway on a whole host of things? And so they figured they would get out ahead of it. Thanks and hope you can continue with your GB News show for a while longer. Ofcom be damned. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting, isn't it, Veronica? I don't know. You know, Ofcom have extraordinary powers. It's a far worse situation than the Canadian Human Rights Commissions. They have incredible powers. They they wield those powers very ruthlessly, and they wield them mostly in the dark while you sleep. Uh, so uh, I, I keep getting told, you know, I'm not supposed to mention Ofcom on air. When they're investigating you, you're just supposed to go all quiet about it. But if you look at it objectively, what it means is that everything you see on British telly or hear on British radio has to be, a, and if they get their way, also on the internet that you can access in the United Kingdom, Everything you uh, see or listen to has to be approved by Ofcom. So me mentioning Ofcom is my only way of signaling that I reject that and that I'm not having my stuff pre-approved by Ofcom. I don't have any. I don't have any choice. I don't. I don't want. You know, when people say, "Oh, it's just controlled opposition." 
Well, in a certain sense, they're right because you have to be, uh, you, you can be taken off air if you do not meet the approval of Ofcom. And that, for that very reason alone, it's necessary to any sense of integrity that one has that you have to say, up yours, Ofcom. Uh, anyway, that wasn't the substance of Veronica's question. I don't think it's occurred because of the midterm. I, well, I tell you, I think the school thing is something to do with the mid. Basically, they privilege the teachers' union over the kids. So the kids are totally uh, wrecked for a generation now. They're behind in everything. And this is American kids, you know, who have pretty crappy uh, positions on those international test score things when it comes to reading, writing, and arithmetic. And it's going to be even worse now. I mean, many of these kids who the basic social cues they've picked up at by the age of two, this lot, uh, if you were a newborn in 2020, you haven't picked up those things. You're not used to reading even mummy and daddy's faces because whenever you go out, mummy and daddy are must. Sometimes, you're, if you have to go on these god-awful American airlines, you, the kid had to be masked. And so, and so just reading uh, just basic social cues. There's been far less kiddies playing with kiddies. Uh, all that is backward. The immune systems are weakened because a kid doesn't, a newborn doesn't really have an immune system. You build that up by being out in the world in your first two years, crawling around on the floor with little Freddy from next door and uh, little uh, Gladys from the other side of the street, and you're all crawling around on the floor. And that's how you build up your immune system. These people's immune system has been damaged. And so I think they're just, I don't think this is anything to do with the midterms. I don't think it's anything to do with Elon Musk taking over Twitter. I think they concede these things when it doesn't matter. So John Stewart, we're supposed to be impressed because now he acknowledges that the Hunter Biden Burisma deal was, quote, corruption straight up. Whoop-de-doo. Nothing's changed. The facts about the Burisma deal, the facts about uh, corrupt Ukrainians paying uh, a guy to sit on the board of their company because he's the son of the then vice president of the United States and potential next president of the United States. Why didn't you see that in uh, early 2020 or 2019? Are you an idiot? Nothing has changed about the essential facts of the case. They only start doing this climb down when it doesn't matter. So they're only doing that because they're preparing uh, for the deal that's about to be, you know, it's against all these leaking of, oh, the Hunter Biden laptop, the Hunter, these are the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt federal Department of Justice has had the Hunter Biden laptop for something like three years now. They know what's on it. They know all the porn that's on it. They know the underage girls that are on it. And they know all the emails uh, from the various sinister Chinamen uh, talking about the 10% for the big guy, Joe Biden, on it. They've known all that for three years. So when they're talking openly about, oh, maybe bringing charges against him uh, for not filling in a permit correctly when he applied for a handgun uh, or for not paying all his taxes, they're giving you a heads up 
that they're going to look butch and uh, charge Hunter Biden with something, and then he's going to settle, and it's probably not for any jail time, and it's all going to go away. It's corrupt, America. It's corrupt everywhere you turn. If you can't get the stench of corruption, you've been here too long and uh, you should go and uh, take uh, a fortnight in Finland or something just to get the stench out of your nostrils so you won't be acclimatized to it. And when you get back from your fortnight in Finland, you might get the whiff of it in your nostrils. It's disgusting. It's disgusting, uh, the corruption. Uh, anyway, I didn't mean to get this worked up uh, this early in the show, so I'll tell you what, let's uh, go to our musical interlude. A musical interlude. We always like to have one just to, when my uh, constitution waving gets too much, uh, just for me to calm down. Neil Hefty was born 100 years ago. It's uh, It's always... I've reached that stage in life, which is not a terribly uh, agreeable stage of life, when when people you met in their prime uh, would now have been 100 years old. And so it is with Neil Hefty, who was born a century ago in Hastings, Nebraska. Um, He was a pretty good trumpet player in high school. And next thing you know, he was playing with Woody Herman and Woody let him do a little arranging on the side. And then Count Basie took him on and he never looked back. He was a great arranger and he became a very in-demand film composer. He liked singers. In fact, he married one, uh, Francis Wayne, who was uh, Woody Herman's vocalist. And he made two of the all-time greatest vocal albums with Frank Sinatra. But he didn't always like lyrics. Uh, And when it comes to one of his best-known compositions, as we'll hear a bit later, the lyric has just one word. So he tended to compose instrumentally, but some of those instrumentals became as well-known as any hit song. Uh, Neil Simon had a hit play in the 60s, and they turned it into a film and then a sitcom, and then another film, and then another sitcom, and then a children's cartoon, and then yet another sitcom. And so it's been pretty much on the air somewhere or other for over half a century. Neil Hefty conducts his own composition, but listen carefully, it might go somewhere you weren't expecting. They are known as the couple 
you're never seen alone, so they're known as a couple. As I've indicated, they are never quite separated. They are reason apart, don't you think that it's odd? Their habits I confess, none can guess with the couple. If one says no, it's yes, more or less with the couple. But they're laugh provoking. Yet, they really don't know they're joking, don't you find? When love is blind, it's kind of odd. Don't you think it's odd? Don't you think it's odd? Don't you think it's Neil Hefty wrote the music, but did you know The Odd Couple Has Lyrics? They're by my old chum, Sammy Khan. Sammy prided himself on being the king of the movie title theme. He didn't care what the title was. I once tested him on that. I said, OK, give me a song for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And he instantly responded, You took a chainsaw to my heart last night in Texas. But the odd couple defeated him. Mainly, I think, because he used the word couple and he used the word odd, but he couldn't figure out a spot in Neil Hefty's tune to use them together. Once over lunch, I... uh, tried to get Sammy to admit to that, but he deflected and said that, quote, Hefty used that awful vocal choir that did nothing for the song. And that's true. And lunch ended and we shook hands on the sidewalk. And about a week later, a bulky package arrived from Sammy. And inside was a cassette with some writing on it in Sammy's unmistakable hand. And I put it in the machine and played it. And if you don't like that vocal choir, this version certainly packs more punch. Neil Hefty and Sammy Khan singing their original demo for The Odd Couple. No matter where they go, they are known as the couple. They're never seen alone. So they're known as the couple As I've indicated They are never quite separated They are teasing apart Don't you think that it's odd? Their habits I confess None can guess with the couple one says no, it's yes, more or less with the couple. But they're laugh provoking, yet they really don't know they're joking, don't you find? When love is blind, it's kind of odd. Don't you think it's odd? Don't you think it's odd? Don't you think it's odd? 
Neil Hefty, the composer, and Sammy Khan, the lyricist, doing their best to put over Sammy's entirely superfluous lyric to Neil's magnificent tune on The Odd Couple. I once asked Mr. Hefty about that lyric, and he just shook his head. Superfluous is the word. Uh, If you'd wanted it to be non-superfluous, it would have had to be a much better lyric, and not with all those uh, filler phrases like their habits... Uh, Their habits, you can guess, I confess, and all those little things. We'll have a bit more Neil Hefty for you later, as well as on Sunday's Song of the Week. Let's get back to your questions. We are live at 3.40 p.m. North American Eastern Time, which is 22.8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. And James, one of our founding members, says, Hey, Mark, I can't wait to watch your show on GB News each day, especially when you have Ava Velardinger broke on. Dutch farmers were my ancestors, so her views resonate with me. It's incomprehensible to me that the government of the Netherlands would behave in such a way. Why? Well, I think Neil Oliver actually put it best when he said that basically... Western governments are now in an abusive relationship with their citizens. And that's why all this stuff about constitutional republic uh, versus constitutional monarchy, I don't really go for because we're all sliding off the cliff. And yes, America's the big dog. But precisely for that reason, uh, America's going to drag everybody else off the cliff with her. So there's differences only at the nuance. And if you take Neil Oliver's phrase seriously that Western governments are in an abusive relationship with their citizens, and in fact, they are not accountable to, they are not responsible to the people that they're meant to be accountable to and responsible to in the fullest sense. And you see that in all kinds of things. With the United States, for example, the shortage of baby formula. Uh, That is... That's actually a pretty big thing when you're when you're prepared to actually screw over newborn mothers, which is what that amounts to. And yet nothing uh, else, uh, nothing comes of it. There's no price to be paid for it. As we know, it's an American, Bill Gates, who's now the biggest farmer on the planet, biggest landowner. In, in If you're a farmer and you're thinking of selling up the family farm, the easiest people to sell it to is Bill Gates Or if you happen to have a farm that's near, say, a U.S. military facility, there's usually a Chinese general with the uh, with the People's Army who's willing to buy it for you. This is weird. Weird. We have had human farming for about 12,000 years. I mean, that's the earliest trace of it in Mesopotamia. And. It's It's been a basic of society. It, almost all societies were agrarian until the early years of the Industrial Revolution uh, when mills and factories then supplanted farming. But basically, you, you can't really uh, grow your food in a mill or a factory. So farming has survived for 12,000 years because it's basic, because it's, it, we're supposed to... We have to eat. Now, when the Netherlands, which is one of the best uh, farming uh, cultures on earth, 
And they, you know, it's a small, crowded country, but they have fantastically productive farms and they ship the produce of those farms all over the world. When a country like the Netherlands decides that, uh, no, these farmers have to get out of the farming business and they're making the farmers, I think it's up to 600 now, sell their farms to the government. And Ava says they're going to put housing for illegal migrants on those farms, which is marginally less idiotic than the British government's proposal in at one point to put migrants in special camps in London's huge parks, if you know Hyde Park and Green Park and Kensington Gardens, they attract thousands of terrorists, not terrorists, tourists, but they'd be housing <laughs> lots of thousands of terrorists. So if you're an American tourist, oh, darling, let's go to London, take a stroll through Hyde Park. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be filled with Ahmed and Mohammed, so it's going to be great. Yeah, it's an abusive relationship. There is no substitution for uh, for twelve thousand years of farming that they have come up with, and so what they're going to do here is actually destroy. They're going to destroy. Uh, our existing system. It's rather like what they're planning to do with motor cars. They're going to destroy uh, the um, the the uh, petro- petroleum-powered vehicle before they've any way of ensuring that uh, the so-called electric vehicle will be able to pick up the slack. What they're doing is not tr- transitioning from the internal combustion engine to an electric motor vehicle, they're actually ending the age of private motorized transportation. And people like Ava are very good. She's enormously talented. She's very young. And uh, she's on her way to the top. And I'm very grateful that on her way to the top, she's decided to stop off at the Mark Stein show en route. John says, Mark, few people frame the current issues of our time in terms of the true underlying motives of the actors. Most of the current issues are really the same thing. The elites attempting to trick the poor into doing something good for the elites. For example, the no oil PhD student on your GB News show last week wants a future free of oil because he believes that future is good for him. And he's going to get it by duping the poor into becoming poorer to dead. It's most basic. He's a rich kid taking wealth from the poor. I think Boris and King Charles commit the same sin with net zero. They want a pristine future for their kids. It's not about helping the planet. It's about helping them. These issues are a primitive battle for wealth. How do you expose the ruse? Well, you did the way... If That's happened because of what I occasionally refer to in an American tendency, in an American context, as the monarchical tendency in a population. It's, 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 it's bred deep into humanity to uh, accept that there are betters who rule us. That is something that has been true for most of human history. And the age of so-called responsible government is very short in comparison. And I often 
I often remark that, as I said, in an American context, I've talked about it on Tucker, at the way people get giddy, prostrate themselves before utterly minor Kennedys, before Chelsea Clinton, who is a total worthless walking mediocrity. I don't mean she's not worthless to those who know her and love her. I mean, the idea that Chelsea Clinton should be a senator or a governor just because she happens to be... Uh, the daughter of Bill and Hillary Clinton. I mean, the fact that Hillary Clinton uh, is a senator and a secretary of state uh, for no other reason than than the fact that she was married to Bill Clinton. Uh, The idea that there are people apart who rule us is an idea that is actually um, growing, growing stronger, I think, For example, that guy who slapped down Elon Musk, Monsieur Thierry, the the commissioner for the internal market of the European Union. A lot of Europeans think it's perfectly natural that there should be people who make decisions for 500 million Europeans uh, without bothering to find out what those guys would want. They think it's natural. And something of the same goes on. Uh, in uh, the Commonwealth, most Commonwealth countries. Something of the same certainly goes on in the United States, where the answer now of the left, the left, the left's response to everything, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about, uh, it applies even now to war. Oh, this Ukraine thing all seems very odd to me. Oh, you don't listen to our generals. Uh, uh, oh, well, what about the public health? Oh, are you a virologist? I don't know about this climate change. Oh, are you a climate scientist? This idea that there are people who are more expert than us and rule us uh, and, and, and that that overrides democracy. Oh, the people are too stupid. The people are not, unfortunately, Uh, informed enough about climate science to be able to decide that for themselves. We have to leave that to climate scientists. And uh, we have to leave that, uh, we have to leave the pandemic to the public health experts. This is a very, this is worse actually than in the, the age of absolute monarchy, because in the age of kings, it was understood by both parties that to a certain extent, the all-powerful monarch is just the beneficiary of a genetic lottery. I mentioned on air with my friend Toby Young that his dad, uh, Michael Young, Lord Young, uh, had written, had invented the word meritocracy, not as a good thing. He'd written a sort of futuristic dystopia thing, a bit like 1984 or Brave New World, in which society was governed by meritocrats. And he had not meant that as a good thing, that actually the consensus of, uh, of a, a wider persons whose knowledge is merely general is actually much better at calculating the competing factors. But in fact, people now prostrate themselves before the expert. Well, this man, Dr. Fauci, he's been running public health and the United States government for over half a century. Yeah, well, do the American people look particularly healthy to you? 
whether it's through fentanyl or the uh, appalling diet or whatever it is you want to talk about. That's what Fauci's uh, been running. Oh, no, no, but that's no more. Even this is without even getting into any of the AIDS stuff, which he was wrong about as he's wrong on everything. I don't even want to pick on Fauci. I don't even want to pick on uh, the, the United States government with all its lavishly funded acronyms because every single government got every single thing wrong these last three years. If you think of it, that's if you think of it from the point of view of the person on the receiving end. Oh, why did they do this to our kids? Uh, Our kids are idiots. They're all even more backward than they were. Uh, That's if you look at it from the point of view of those on the receiving end. The other way to look on it is, again, a Neil Oliver line that they didn't just do this by accident. They didn't do this as a good faith error. They did this because it's important to them to do this. Because, you know, if you look at the way the world is going, it's going in some pretty unpleasant... If you don't like what's happening at the southern border of the United States on the Rio Grande or the southern shore of England from the Little Dinghies, pitch it on 30 years, 28 years to mid-century when there will have been this huge population explosion in Africa and the Muslim world, and those are countries that can't support their existing populations, all those people are going to be getting into small boats either to get across the Mediterranean to Europe or they're going to be in some little flat-bottomed skiff-type thing to get across the Rio Grande because that's the only... They're the only places to go that they can get into. Now, at that point, uh, whichever governments are in position in the West, in North America and in Europe uh, and in his majesty's dominions are going to be have to be very authoritarian governments, because in order to prevent the ruling class losing its own perks and privileges, they're going to have to take some extraordinary measures to keep the population in control in the face of huge planet wide upheaval. That's simply going on the U.N population divisions numbers. I think, you know, as Tony Blair once uh, said to Christopher Hitchens when they were talking about my book and its demographic implications, he said, uh, uh, and Hitchens asked Blair whether it was part of the uh, European conversation. He said, well, it's part of the subterranean conversation. They're not really subterranean because a lot of these conversations take place on the top of an Alp in Davos with Klaus Schwab. But they talk about these things. And, you know, when you get all the clever people in a room, the the niceties are not observed. If if they were talking in a panel discussion on MSNBC, uh, they might feel obliged to pretend to defer to... The, the concept of democracy as an inviolable thing. When they're all sitting around and they're listening to Jane Goodall say that the optimum population for the planet is 500,000, then they don't have to observe the niceties. And so these totalitarian impulses are talked about uh, for the good of the planet. And as to reprise my oldest of old jokes, 
uh, at their Monday night poker game in hell. Uh, Mao and Stalin and Hitler are all, I don't know who makes up the fourth one. Uh, Mao and Stalin and Hitler are all sitting around saying, boy, we're doing this to save the planet. Why didn't we think of that? It's fantastic. And they all think about it. Just to tie it, by the way, I've had here a couple of questions from Carol and Robert Fox on the uh, assault of Paul Pelosi, who is Nancy Pelosi's husband, who was actually physically assaulted, I believe he's still in hospital, by a home invader who hit him with a hammer. And I have no idea whether this is some... (laughs) false front operation. At this stage, I wouldn't rule that out. All he can say about his his assailant is that it was someone with a hammer. So it could be, you know, just Nancy in a face mask with her gavel as speaker. One doesn't doesn't know. I don't rule anything out these days. But assuming that this, just setting that aside and assuming for the moment that this is a genuine attack, it's actually very symbolic because Uh, The assumption of those who lead us is that the conditions they impose on the rest of us, like all this vibrant diversity that has absolutely destroyed the Western world, that they will be immune to that because they will always be secure behind their gates, uh, whether they're in Malibu or Martha's Vineyard or wherever. And so if that is a genuine... Break, breaking and entering a home invasion, as they say in America, with um, a guy wielding a hammer and taking it to Paul Pelosi, then that is a reminder that actually the people... Here, here's the other thing, too. Once it all goes to hell, um, people, ha- people have to figure out where the future is. You know, So if you look at Joe Biden and the Biden family, if you look at Boris Johnson and the Johnson family or Rishi Sunak and the Sunak family, almost all the families who matter have concluded that China has already won, and therefore there's no point being a great heroic American person or a great heroic British person, because that's over. You want to be on the new winning team. And the assumption in all the Hunter emails, in all Joe Biden and Jim Biden, that's the brother, in all their business activities, is that China is what matters and China's already won. Same thing with Justin Trudeau. Same thing with Boris Johnson and his brother who's working over in China. Uh, Same thing with Jeremy Hunt, the British Chancellor, and his sister who's working over in China. Uh, That's the thing. It's it's, they've figured out that uh, we're not the winners anymore and that You want to be on the winning side. Um, Scott Barnhouse says, Mark, we now know that the Biden administration actively pressures social media companies to suppress voices that they do not agree with, as was exposed in Alex Berenson's discovery resulting from his lawsuit against Twitter. Uh, The Biden administration pressured Twitter to ban him. Yeah, that's actually in breach of the First Amendment right there. This use of private companies to suppress speech that the government does not approve of is quite 
disturbing. It seems that the West really is in the late stages of capitalism, degrading to fascism. People like Mann are using the courts, I would say colluding with the courts, to suppress the speech of anyone that degrees on, disagrees on the climate issue. You won what increasingly feels like a short-term victory in Canada against suppression of speech, but it seems to be going the other way. Is this just the ebb and flow of society moving from freedom to totalitarianism? I would argue the more natural state of mankind, and then in a few centuries, hopefully back towards freedom, or is there something else going on? Thanks for all of your content. Love being a member of the club. Well, there is something going on. When I fought my uh, free speech battle in Canada, which isn't that long ago, I thought of it as a, uh, a traditional free speech battle about the principles of free speech. That isn't what's going on now. This is about power. This is the fact that we now have, and I don't believe I would have won, by the way, if we'd had uh, Twitter and Facebook and all that around now. There was a moment, and we'll be getting into this a bit for one reason and another in the, uh, in, in the uh, days ahead and through November. Um, because I, uh, 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 at one time, the internet was the great liberator. I appeared in newspapers in uh, London and in Toronto and in various other places, but I didn't have any particular profile in the United States. And then the internet comes along and suddenly people can, uh, can click here and click there. And next thing you know, they're reading some column in a London newspaper by some fellow called Stein. And that's really how people got to know me in America. And as I said, at that point, the internet was seen as the great liberator, that the world's knowledge could be accessed. You could be sitting in, in, in the middle of nowhere and you could access all the great archives of the world's cities at the click of a button. And it's not that now. Uh, this guy, Thierry, uh, the uh, European Union guy, these guys are serious about controlling the internet. They're all now doing... Th in, in fact, Monsieur Thierry is openly boasting of what the Chinese do in the darkness. They don't boast about it in the same way. He does, oh, yes, everything you, everything you say has to be approved by me. Well, you're an asshole. Why, why do I have to get it approved by you? Nobody, talk to anybody under middle age. There is no principled uh, respect for free speech anymore. Something has changed. It's particularly... You know, countries that were the countries that have constitutional protections uh, about free speech, such as the United States, young people don't think they should have them. They think there's a correct answer on trans issues. There's a correct answer on climate. There's a uh, correct answer on a, a whole list of issues from Islam to same-sex marriage and that there's no free expression with regard to that because it's it's all you can trigger me you're traumatizing all the rest of it so it's not the ebb and flow no and there's that's one thing by the way to have sort of traditional ebb and flow you can have free speech but you can have a climate in which you know nobody wants to uh make a play in which 
you know, Jesus is sodomized by Judas Iscariot, as appeared on Broadway. You can have a climate in which that play can't get produced because the producer doesn't want to lose money because nobody wants to see a play about Jesus getting sodomized by Judas Iscariot. That's ebb and flow. We're way beyond that because what we have now is that the rulers, and this is what's revealing about the Biden-Alex Berenson thing, is that the most powerful men in the state and indeed on the planet have the means to very easily, because of technology, to unperson you. And that's the world of 1984, and that is the world that they're creating for us. Now, the prison walls, I used to talk about when this show started, which is over five years ago now, it's like five and a half years ago we started doing these. And I think on the second or third, I first used the expression, you know, the last rusting photocopier in the woods, that when they had taken control, because they've always wanted to, and they've never been able to, and now they can do it, and in fact, people volunteer for it. They they walk around as we uh, as uh, we were talking about. I think uh, the other night on TV, you know, this the cell phone is basically an ankle bracelet. It tells the authorities where you are at any moment of the day. Um, so they now have the means to control us all. And when I started talking about the last rusting photocopier in the woods, which was my image for what, when all this is gone, what we're doing today is gone, and uh, I'm there somewhere in the middle of the great north woods of New Hampshire with my last rusting photocopier, printing out pieces of paper to take clandestinely to known supporters scattered hither and yon, I said that that world would be upon us a lot sooner than we think. And they are building our prison walls. Uh, I, I, I said that in 2017, early in 2017, three years later, the erection of the prison walls began seriously with all this misinformation and stuff. Philip Paustian says, let's have this as this is a good last question. <laughs> I like this one. Do you as an Ian Fleming scholar think Bond's blood pressure in Thunderball on his medical exam reflected Fleming's at the time? And he included the criticisms of the blood pressure and Bond's drinking and smoking to kid his doctor. Did he have a known history of heart disease before his untimely demise? Apologies, says Philip, for being completely off current events. And thank you and your staff for your ongoing hard work that both informs and entertains us. Well, uh, he did have a, a known history of heart disease. Uh, Ian Fleming lived a very good life. I often say when people say, well, why do you want to become a writer? I say, well, I didn't know much about writing. But when you read interviews with writers, for example, with Ian Fleming, uh, he, he had an enviable life. He wrote at his home, Golden Eye, in uh, Jamaica. And he'd write in the morning 
and then he'd have lunch, and then he'd go scuba diving with Ursula Andrus in the afternoon. She was his next-door neighbour, I think, at one point. And I thought that was, well, is that, what, is that how writers live? <laughs> that sounds great. Sign me up for that. And uh, he had a great life, Ian Fleming. By the time he was my age, he was dead. Uh, and that was because he smoked and drank and... Uh, in I think it was in 1960, 1961, he had his first heart attack and he never quite recovered. And so that scene at the opening of Thunderball where, where Bond is in some health clinic and he's being given all, these, all this health food, that was very much a fad of the time to which Ian Fleming had been uh, had been exposed and i think there's no doubt that that actually comes from his own experience of these things he didn't actually you know whatever it was that was 1961 his first heart attack and then 1964 he'd had like a very ordinary day um he'd been he was in canterbury i think and had been to lunch at a golf club there, you know, very rather like the one that uh, uh, that uh, Goldfinger and Bond are playing at in the film Con- Goldfinger. And then he was uh, he he had a massive heart attack, and he was he was quite coherent in the ambulance. He uh, and he was making chit chat with them about uh, apologizing at having to call them out. And gosh, they seem to be moving at quite a clip considering there was all this traffic on the roads these days. And then he went to hospital and he came out of the hospital by the handles. And uh, that was that. that. But I think that is true, that he was mocking one of the fads of the age there, Philip. He lived a good life and I don't think he would have wanted to live longer and to not have drank and smoked his way. I'll tell you what, we'll take one more question. Uh, uh, Michael says, hi, Mark, I love the Netflix. Michael Cavino says, Mark, I love the Netflix style tile format of your latest shows and interviews at the top of the homepage. It's extremely convenient. Thanks. Well, for one reason or another, we're just in a little bit of fluffing up, seeing if we can uh, fine tune and improve things. And I'm glad you like that, Michael. And if you haven't yet seen it, Just under the menu at the top of the homepage, under the banner, you'll see whatever it is, the uh, 10 most recent of our video, audio shows, essays, all there in a convenient Netflix tile format uh, for you to do with as you wish. And I hope it helps you there. Let's have a little bit more music before we close things out. We've been celebrating the centenary of a great jazz arranger and composer, Neil Hefty. In the early 60s, he was working for Frank Sinatra, uh, for Frank's new record company, Reprise Records. And management was very anxious to, to cut itself a piece of the action on a genuine nationwide dance craze, The Twist. And somebody remembered a very minor Fat Swallow hit from 30 years earlier about a dance craze that never took off <laughs> uh, uh, called Everybody's Truckin'. 
and uh, we played it on this show back at the time of the Canadian truckers in celebration of them. And so every somebody remember that very minor fat swallow hit from 30 years earlier, everybody's trucking, and thought, hey, why not just update it to everybody's twisting? And I'd wager Neil Hefty found Chubby Checker about as musically engaging as watching paint dry, but he took uh, the tune for trucking and oomphed it up with a driving motif that is vaguely twist-esque and totally cool. And if you want to know where... Uh, Will Neil Hefty, uh, I think two or three years later, wound up writing the theme for the Batman TV show. And if you want to know where Hefty's dinner, dinner, dinner theme for Batman came from, check out this Sinatra single from four years earlier. Frank and Bruce Wayne might as well be twins separated at birth. dance to do for recreation so someone started twisting a cat who was really hep put down a step a new gyration soon all the kids were twisting it didn't take long before the grown-ups were trying it who's who was buying it all over town See them a squirming and a worming and a twisting around. It spread like a forest blaze, became a craze that rocked the nation now. Everybody's twisting. To do for recreation So Someone started twisting And a cat who was really happy Put down a step A new gyration soon All the kids were twisting No, it didn't take long Before the grown-ups were tying it Who's who was buying it all over town You'll see them a-squirming and a-worming and a-twisting around It spread like a forest blaze Became a craze that rocked the nation now Everybody's twisting There is a-hopping and a-slopping and a-flopping Sacroiliacs a-popping Everybody's twisting Mop! Mop! Sacroiliacs up poppin', asserts Frank Sinatra with orchestra arranged and conducted by Neil Hefty, whom we salute on the occasion of his centenary this weekend. Music by Ruby Bloom, words by Ted Kohler, updating his original lyric from three decades earlier. There are a remarkable number of Sinatra recordings 
that use the word sacroiliac. One day we're going to do a show called the Sinatra Sacroiliac Songbook. Well, as I said, I reckon Neil Hefty repurposed that dinner, dinner, dinner motif uh, for a TV theme that gave him great difficulty in composition. But we can't not play it, so let me introduce it with an ancient joke beloved by generations of schoolchildren. How does Alfred the butler call Batman into dinner? Answer, dinner, 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 Batman! Stick with Stein Online this weekend for the 100 Years Ago Show. Rick McGuinness's movie pick, Stein's Song of the Week, and a brand new Sunday poem. Stay safe, stay free. Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. Rights Reserved.